Magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Today we have two comments on the Supreme Court's recent decisions. Later in the hour, the people who say America is a Christian nation had some big victories at the Supreme Court last week on school prayer and on taxpayer funding for religious schools. Sarah Posner will comment. But first, the big question, what is to be done about the Supreme Court? David Cole, National Legal Director of the ACLU and Legal Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, has the best answer. Organize and vote. That's coming up in a minute. What is to be done about the Supreme Court? With a solid 6-3 to three majority, right-wing justices, maybe you heard the news, abolished the constitutional right to abortion this term, struck down a 100-year-old law in New York restricting who could carry guns in public, and attacked the separation of church and state. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and a professor at Georgetown Law School. He writes for the New York Times, the New York Review, the Washington Post, and he's legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the court's big decisions this term were immensely unpopular on abortion rights. For instance, only 35% of Americans favored the Supreme Court abolishing Roe. In the gun case, more than three quarters of New Yorkers supported the state's limits on carrying guns. So. What is to be done about the Supreme Court? Justice has served for life. There's nothing we can do about that. But the number of Supreme Court justices can be changed by Congress and has been changed several times in the past. Many of our friends, especially at the nation, favor expanding the court from 9 to 13 or something like that. Uh, what do you think about expanding the court? I don't think expanding the court is uh, in the cards, uh, and, and I also don't think it's um, really a good idea as a matter of principle. Look, it's not in the cards uh, because you need extraordinary political, sort of lopsided political will to do something like this. The, the only time a president proposed packing the court, adding justices to change its uh, ideological valence, was the 1930s. The president was FDR. Uh, one of the most popular presidents in history. Uh, the court at that time was as unpopular as it's ever been because it was repeatedly striking down laws that were protecting consumers and workers from being exploited by big business. Uh, and even then, FDR's proposal to pack the court could not obtain majority support, even from you know Democrats. And so the idea that somehow Joe Biden is going to be able to enact something with a with a Congress uh, in which you know the Senate is controlled by uh, Joe Manchin, you know, it's just it's 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 ludicrous. Uh, it's there's just no chance. But then also, I think it's a I think it's a mistake as a matter of principle, because you know the reason we have a court is that it is supposed to be an institution that decides matters not by sort of partisan vote. That's what. The Congress does, you know, that's what the president does. But the justices are supposed to decide cases on their merits, not looking at the partisan uh, outcomes and the like. Do they always succeed? No. But should they uh, try? Absolutely. Particularly if you think a court is important to protect individual rights 
and liberties of those who can't protect themselves through institutions that are responsive to the political process. So if you, if we, you know, if the Democrats add uh, four justices this time around, then the Republicans get control. They'll add two justices to get get it in their court, and then the same thing will happen every time you have a different uh, majority in in Washington. You know, then you've just turned uh, the court into another political body, and then it doesn't really serve its function. Okay. You're not for expanding the court. What do you think should be done? Well, look, I don't think that we should ever accept a Supreme Court decision as the end of the story. It never has been the end of the story. It never will be the end of the story. I mean, look look at how the anti-abortion folks responded to Roe. They didn't say, oh, no, you know, the court has protected the right. We, we might as well go home. They organized. They lobbied. They uh, fought for incremental change in a whole variety of, uh, of venues, in, often in state legislatures, state courts, the, the nomination process. They made it a political issue in presidential campaigns, and eventually they prevailed for now. We need to respond in the same way. We need to organize, lobby, and fight about the rights that we believe in. Instead of trying to fight for packing the court, which is you know, not going to happen and a bad idea, let's fight for the right to abortion. Let's fight for separation of church and state. Let's fight for the notion that uh, states should be able to pass reasonable gun laws. And what history shows, what history shows is that the court very rarely parts company with where the, the country is on fundamental issues. And when it does, if the country responds, the court responds. So we need to be pushing back through all the forums that we have, and there are many. Let's talk about some of those forums. Even Alito agrees the Constitution does not bar states from protecting the right to abortion. So our focus, as you say, has got to be in the states. And one of the things we can do in the states and that you are doing is legal challenges in state courts. That's the job of the ACLU, along with its partners like Planned Parenthood. Some states have constitutions that protect abortion rights. Let's talk about some of those. I was surprised to see that Utah, one of the most conservative states in the country, which has now banned abortion, has a state constitution adopted in 1896 that provides that, quote, both males and female citizens of this state shall enjoy equally all civil, political, and religious rights and privileges, close quote. And Utah's constitution also guarantees that state residents have the right to plan their own families. That would seem to include the right to choose abortion, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's, and, and we are pursuing that claim in the Utah state courts. And there are a number of, of state uh, constitutions that have provisions that protect liberty or protect family decision making. Uh, that um, I think properly read, uh, protect the right to abortion. Let me also point to Florida, which has a state constitution that includes an explicit right to privacy. Two thirds of people in Florida support the right to abortion. Privacy was not accepted by the current Supreme Court as a basis for uh, abortion rights, but couldn't, couldn't it be the law in Florida? Absolutely, I and mean, the federal constitution creates a floor. States cannot go below what the federal constitution protects, but it does not create a ceiling. 
States can and often do go above in their constitutions and their laws what federal law requires. And so, you know, part of the, of the battle here is shoring up those states that do protect abortion and, and making uh, sure that there are constitutional protections there so you can't get, you know, a, a sort of a fallback. Uh, and using state constitutional arguments to challenge anti-abortion laws that are enacted in states where the Constitution protects the right. So what's the ACLU doing in Florida? So we sued in Florida and we got an, an injunction from the trial judge. Florida is, of course, appealing and you know, only the Florida Supreme Court will ultimately decide it. But uh, there's this, I, you know, I think a very strong argument there that, that this state protects the right of women to decide to terminate a pregnancy. And one more state that really surprised me, Kentucky. The Kentucky state constitution provides a right to bodily autonomy as well as privacy. What's the ACLU doing in Kentucky? Again, we're suing there as well. I mean, we are suing everywhere we can uh, to protect the right uh, to abortion and relying on these state constitutional arguments. Now, you know, whether we succeed in the end will, will depend on what the state Supreme Courts in those states uh, decide. But, you know, they and some of them are quite conservative. So, you know, it, it could be a, a tough row, road to hoe, but it's an important way to push back uh, and, you know, and to hold states accountable to the promises they put into their constitutions. Taking legal challenges to state courts is the ACLU's job, but of course there's a lot of other things that we can do. Well, absolutely, right? It's, it's, it's about using every forum available to you to advance the values that you care about. And you know, I mean, this is how the marriage equality folks got marriage equality. You know, 1970s, the idea that, that the Constitution protected the same-sex marriage was really unthinkable by 2016 when the court recognized that it was essentially inevitable. And, the, and how did that happen? By gay rights groups organizing, coming together, and engaging in systematically and advancing the notion that two people of the same sex can love each other in, in the same sort of committed way. Uh, as as anybody else, and and they did it through amending family law, and they did it by getting domestic partnership benefits expanded, and they did it by getting state uh, legislation enacted, and they did it by advocating in state courts. All before the Supreme Court recognized that right, and the NRA did the same thing with respect to the right to bear arms, uh, which was rejected by Warren Burger a Republican-appointed conservative Supreme Court justice, he rejected the notion in 1970s, he said, the notion that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the American public in my lifetime. And, you know, in 2008, the Supreme Court recognized that fraud as constitutional law. And how did that happen? It happened because the NRA organized its membership to make the right to bear arms a central issue in political campaigns, in who gets elected and who doesn't get elected. They went around state by state and advanced the notion of a right to bear arms so that by the time it got to the Supreme Court in 2008, almost all the states had already recognized uh, a right to bear arms under their state laws and state constitutions and made it easier for the court to recognize what Chief Justice Berger called a, a fraud. So, so look, you know, we just can't accept Supreme Court decisions as the end of the game. We have to realize that we need to organize 
and fight and step up and vote and get others to vote for the rights we believe in. And if we do that, those rights, I think, will in the end be protected. It won't happen overnight. It's going to be a tough road. There's going to be a lot of pain and agony. Uh, there already has been and there will be much more. But, but I think we can get there if we fight back. And the other thing I know is if we don't fight back, we won't get there. So we only have one choice. And there's a terrific book about this. It's called Engines of Liberty by David Cole that lays out this whole history of organizing that changed the Supreme Court. And we have the midterms coming up in uh, a, a few months, and there we need to focus on the states in a way that Democrats have not done for a long time. We need to elect Democratic state legislatures and also Democratic governors, especially in battleground states where Republicans control the legislatures or are close to controlling the state legislatures. In particular, let me say Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania are crucial battlegrounds right now that will also be, of course, crucial in 2024. So governors who can veto Republican state legislatures' efforts to abolish abortion rights are Tony Evers in Wisconsin, re-elect Tony Evers in Wisconsin, re-elect Gretchen Whitmer, governor in Michigan. In Pennsylvania, elect Josh Shapiro, governor. And of course, in Georgia, elect Stacey Abrams for governor. We have a lot of work to do. The ACLU is doing its part. It's up to voters to do their part. David Cole is National Legal Director of the ACLU. Any final thoughts here? Well, just, just to sort of double down on your last point there, you know, we are a democracy, and the, the, the single best way we can respond to decisions we don't like is by voting. And people, you know, sometimes say, oh, voting, that's, you know, haven't they uh, undermined the right to vote? Haven't they sought to take away that right from us? Yeah, they have. Um, but we have to push back. And, and voting and getting others out to vote is the single most powerful way that you can bring about change in this country. So absolutely critical that we vote like our rights depend on it, because they do. Uh, and we send a message uh, through the next election and the election after that and the election after that, that decisions that overturn you know, a right central to the equal status of women in this country uh, are unacceptable. And the decisions that hamper our government's ability to protect us from mass shootings are unacceptable. Uh, and if we do that, uh, I think we'll get where we want, because uh, this is, at the end of the day, a democracy. A flawed democracy, but a democracy nonetheless. David Cole is National Legal Director of the ACLU, author of the book Engines of Liberty, and legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. David, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. The people who say America is a Christian nation had some big victories at the Supreme Court this term. On school prayer, the Supreme Court said it was just fine for a high school football coach to pray at the 50-yard line after the game. And the court also ruled that taxpayers must fund religious schools if they are funding non-sectarian private schools. For comment, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of 
Unholy, how white Christian nationalists powered the Trump presidency and the devastating legacy they left behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. She's a reporter with Type Investigations. Her reporting and analysis on the religious right in Republican politics have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, first, let's talk about these two decisions subverting the separation of church and state. The school prayer ruling, it was about a public school district in Washington state. Tell us about Coach Joe Kennedy and his praying after the games and what's behind Coach Kennedy's lawsuit. Well, for several decades now, the religious right has sought to undermine church-state separation, particularly in public schools. And one of the ways in which they've sought to chip away at it is to make it increasingly easier for school officials or people associated with the school in some way to pray, pray at students, pray with students, pray in a way that seems like the, the school itself or the school district itself is endorsing this sectarian prayer. So the Coach Kennedy case was just the latest in a string of cases about school prayer. And the court very blatantly disregarded documentary evidence in the form of photos and video that Coach Kennedy was not engaging in private prayer as the majority opinion stated. He was, in fact, praying with the students alongside him. And the issue was, did the students feel free to leave? What the dissent said was, you know, no student is going to feel free to leave. Anybody who's been in school or played school sports knows that the students are going to feel free to leave if the coach says, let's pray on the 50-yard line. So it's really a, kind of a very troubling example of the direction in which the court is moving on these kinds of church-state separation cases. Yeah, there was an interesting letter to the New York Times from a rabbi in South Carolina who said, the number one issue that I as a rabbi have been contacted about by students is about sports, Jewish students who get benched because they don't join in the Christian team prayer before or after a game. Jewish students who don't get playing time because they won't go to the Christian pizza lunch offered at school. Jewish students who lost their starting spot on the team because they missed a game or even a practice for the high holy days. Things like this are going on at a lot of schools, apparently. Absolutely. And I've heard from people, too, where, you know, their kid or reflecting back on their childhood, they were one of the only Jewish students, or if you can, can imagine also, you know, other religions, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus. And I think part of the thing that's happening here is the religious right has long sought to reverse these early 1960s decisions by the Warren court, holding that school prayer and Bible reading are unconstitutional because it's an imposition of a sectarian religious view on students in public schools. They've been long trying to reverse that by chipping away at it, but at the same time, culturally, they've already chipped away at it in places where evangelical Christians are in basically the majority in these communities all over the country. And a lot of these coaches and teachers have been told you know, by the religious right that they need to be evangelizing people. They need to be evangelizing students. 
as you can imagine, and I think it's not hard for anybody to imagine, particularly in the sports setting, the kind of coercion that goes on, even implicit coercion that goes on in those kinds of situations. No, I imagine praying at high school sports events is not the end game that the evangelicals are seeking. Where, where would they like this to end up? It's not just football games. They would like there to be prayer in the classroom. So uh, you walk into homeroom at 8, 10 in the morning and your teacher has a prayer to start the day, perhaps before or after the Pledge of Allegiance, right? They would like that to be, they would really like that to be the norm. And I think that they haven't contemplated what they would do if the teacher were another religion and trying to impose that on the students. But I think that the Supreme Court is so stacked in the favor of Christian prayer that they're not really worried about it for the moment. And the other big decision was on state funding for religious schools. This case came from Maine, where the court ordered a school district to pay parents for their children's tuition at a private Christian academy uh, where the curriculum is biblically based with religion, quote, integrated through all content areas. I understand there are 37 state constitutions that ban the direct or indirect use of taxpayer money for religious schools. And all of that now seems to have been repealed. So this is a huge decision. Uh, tell us about what's behind the parents in Maine who won this case. What's really important for your listeners to understand is that the heart of all of this is a longstanding attack on public education. And both of these cases are part of that longstanding attack on public education, although in different ways. What they want in Maine and all over the country is for private school voucher programs or tuition assistance programs to equally fund sectarian religious schools and secular private schools. The program in Maine did not allow the funding, that, that kind of tuition assistance or vouchers to, to go to religious schools, only private secular schools. And um, the claim in the case was that was uh, violated religious freedom. And uh, it's not at all surprising that this Supreme Court ruled in favor of funding the religious schools because the, the balance between the Establishment Clause, the, the, the clause in the First Amendment that provides for the separation of church and state, and religious freedom, which is another freedom of religion, another clause in the First Amendment, the balance between those two clauses has been tipping way in favor of religious freedom based on the political advocacy of the religious right, but also their very successful legal campaign to tip the balance away from the separation of church and state such that that would be eliminated and elevating religious freedom. But it's really important to understand in their view, it's religious freedom for a certain group of Christians. The main case had a lot of particularities about it that makes this less than a mandate that all states must fund religious schools. In Maine, the problem is the state is so rural that more than half of its school districts had no public high school. So the state provides funding for parents who don't have a nearby public high school to send their kids to a private school. A lot of states don't do this. For instance, in California, 
There's no state funding for any private school, so this decision does not apply to California and states like it. And Chief Justice Roberts, always the moderate when it comes to extreme uh, right-wing uh, evangelicals, suggested that there were some other steps the state of Maine could take. They could open more public high schools. They could create boarding schools for the kids who live too far away that would be public schools. They could have remote learning for kids who live too far away from public high schools. And all of this would make it unnecessary for them to fund any private high schools. But the ruling is as long as they're funding some private high schools, they must fund religious high schools. Tell us a little bit about the curriculum in religious schools. Well, in conservative Christian private schools, the curriculum is based on what they would call a biblical or a Christian worldview. And if you've ever seen the curriculum for any of these schools, and, you know, obviously there's some variation between them, but in the main, what the students would learn uh, is that, you know, America is a Christian nation, God ordained America as a Christian nation. You have a duty as a citizen, as a patriotic citizen to defend the Christian nation. So this Christian worldview would be incorporated into every aspect of the curriculum. So in biology, you would learn that evolution is just a theory and that you know creationism is the way the world came about. That Adam um, and Eve saw the dinosaurs walking around. <laughs> right. It's not just limited to, say, the history and government class that you would learn things from a Christian worldview. You would similarly learn biology, English, literature, all of those classes would be taught from a Christian worldview. These schools, many of these schools would produce students who would, you know, be expected to go on to, to colleges like Liberty University or Regent University or some other uh, Christian college or university. Um, and that is happening at taxpayer expense, right, in Maine at least, and probably this will happen in other places too. Whereas prior to these cases, and this case in particular at the Supreme Court, um, it was verboten for the state to fund that kind of education because that would be like saying your it's okay to spend your taxpayer dollars in the pursuit of this sectarian religious view. All of that is changing under this new series of cases that have been, you know, decades in the making um, where the religious liberty of conservative Christians is elevated over the separation of church and state. Of course, there are some Jewish schools that are very happy with this decision. There's Muslim schools as well. And Muslim schools as well. As well. I looked this up. Thank, thank you, Wikipedia. There are 235 Islamic schools in the United States. There are something like 860 Jewish day schools. But of course, there are thousands and thousands of Protestant evangelical academies, and there are more than 6,500 Catholic schools. I guess all of these could require taxpayer funding under the main ruling if this became a general policy. And I can't imagine the states could afford private education for all the religious families in America. Well, I'm not sure that the, even the voucher programs cover the entire, you know, in every state cover the entirety of the tuition. Yeah, the, the, the main one is $11,000. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. First of all, not every state funds, you know, provides these kinds of vouchers. But I would be sort of curious to see what happens when 
evangelical Christians find out that Islamic schools are being funded by their taxpayer dollars, because I might, you know, because I was a little surprised I got a press release from the Council on American Islamic Relations after this case came down, this main voucher case came down, praising it. They were very excited about it. But I'll be very curious to see if there's some kind of objection to the schools of other religions being funded by these kinds of programs. It's kind of hard to imagine that the Supreme Court would say that some religions could be funded and others couldn't. But, but of course, we thought we would never get to this point. Well, also, I think if this term taught us anything is that this Supreme Court is not guided by stare decisis or principle of any kind, that the case is just what they decide to do with it. It doesn't matter what the facts are, as in the Coach Kennedy case, and it doesn't matter what actual history is, such as in the Dobbs case, overturning Roe versus Wade. So what is the Christian nationalist endgame on church-state separation? If government was shaped by their vision of the religion clauses of the First Amendment, what would their government look like? They would want government to be run by people who have what they call a Christian worldview. So they would want the president and the representatives in the Senate and senators and people running agencies. This is not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, that people with this Christian worldview would enter government, and they would say, run the health department from a Christian worldview. So the health department could stop giving out condoms in its safe sex program, or they might give out ivermectin instead of COVID vaccines, which is uh, something fairly popular in white evangelical circles that, you know, vaccines are bad. Um, I mean, there are a lot of white evangelicals who've gotten the COVID vaccine, but it's pretty common also for them to be opposed to it. Again, public schools would definitely be a target. Prayer in public schools, teachers evangelizing to students. This is obviously like a worst case scenario, but it's the scenario that they envision. I don't see much that's going to stop this Supreme Court from potentially overturning the early 1960s school prayer decisions. There are two decisions from the early 1960s invalidating mandatory school prayer and mandatory school Bible reading in public schools. Overturning those cases has been in the crosshairs of the religious right for decades. And now we know from this term that this Supreme Court is pretty undeterred in overturning recent precedent. I wouldn't be surprised to see them overturning those cases. And then it would definitely be a free-for-all in public schools. But I think what they would like to see ultimately is every facet of government, you know, the government that runs agencies and courts and that sort of thing, as well as things like public schools, reflect their view of the Christian nation. America is a Christian nation. It's our duty as a public school teacher or as a member of Congress to evangelize people and bring them to Christ. It would be like it would be a very coercive, theocratic way of everybody else being forced to live. Sarah Posner, she's the author of the book Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals in the January 6th insurrection. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, John.
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 